For those of you who are with us for the first time, or maybe you haven't been told this explicitly, but at IVCD we just kind of go through the, the, the Gospels. We just go through the, the Scriptures. And so we've been in Matthew for a long time now. And we're at a place in Matthew which is a difficult section of Scripture. It's a very difficult section of Scripture to come up with a sermon about. But it's there, and so this is what we do. We just kind of move through the Scripture. So if you're with us and you're wondering, why in the world did the pastor choose to preach on this particular passage, uh, this is the reason why. We're going through Matthew, and we're just going to go through everything that's there because it's in the Bible, and it's important to talk about what's in the Bible, regardless of how comfortable it makes us. So last week, we looked at the story of Peter's denial of Christ, and we talked about how, how we can recover when we fail in our faith, when we fail in a place that we've made a promise to the Lord or somehow failed. And it's, while in Peter's story last week we looked at it, we didn't see the recovery that he eventually goes through. We know that he does. If you've if you read the Bible at all, you read the Gospel, you read the book of Acts, we know that in spite of Peter's darkest day where he denies even knowing Christ, calling upon himself an oath and swearing he doesn't know it, he recovers. And not only does he just recover, but he recovers to become one of the most positively influential people in history. He opened the door to faith for non-Jewish people, and he did that by answering a call of obedience that, in a vision from God in the book of Acts, if you want to read about it. But more, probably even more important, or at least as important, is that he supported this somewhat tempestuous a little bit of a difficult personality, but a brilliant personality in the guy named Saul of Tarsus. And Peter's support of the apostle, who eventually becomes the apostle Paul, changes the world. Because the apostle Paul then goes and he takes the gospel all throughout the known world, right along all those countries along the Mediterranean, with an almost manic energy, taking, reaching out to both Jews and to Gentiles. And tradition has it that when Peter was arrested and sentenced to die, he approached that death also with a heartbreaking humility and courage. The tradition tells us that when he found out he was going to be crucified, because the, the Romans thought it would be funny to, to have him die the same way that Jesus died, he actually asked to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same way of Christ. Now, maybe that's a little anecdotal. We're not, no, that's not written in the Scripture. But it's a long-held tradition. But all in all, Peter was a wonderfully human person with all his highs and lows. He, he has these great top mountaintop experiences which you read in the Scripture. He has these valley experiences we read in the Scripture. And he becomes the rock. He doesn't start out being this great leader. And he's not the greatest theologian in the world. He even says some of the things that, that our brother Paul writes are difficult to understand. And he had to be corrected by Paul at one point in his life. But overall, he is, he is everything that Jesus envisioned him to be. But in Matthew's gospel, immediately following the event of Peter's denial, we're shifted over then to the other person who broke faith during the events of the crucifixion. I mean, really deeply broke faith. We're not talking about the disciples that just deserted Christ. Jesus knew that was coming. But we're back at the person of Judas. Judas, who took the equivalence of one month's wage to make it possible for Jesus to be arrested without starting a riot. That's why they did it at night. And that's why they needed Judas to point out who Jesus was because the authorities didn't want the people to know what was happening because they were afraid a riot would start. 
and that would bring in the Romans, and you'd have a, just a, a disaster on their hands. So Judas does this. He makes it possible for Jesus to be arrested without a riot beginning. And why does he do this? Well, we talked about this a little bit before. We don't really know. We don't really know why he does this. It's not, it's not written out it's explicitly in the Scripture why he does this. It's been a topic of speculation for centuries. Some people kind of go into a spiritual uh, explanation. The Apostle John, for example, talks about Judas having a demonic character. Other people talk about it more in, in a sort of a socio uh, socio-political kind of explanation, but we don't really know. But I can say this, and this is my opinion. I don't really despise Judas because I know that Jesus has the victory. There are people who I despise throughout history. Like You look at what they did, the approaches they took to other human beings, they're despicable. But Judas, to me, just seems kind of lost most of the time. And one of the things he seems kind of lost about is he doesn't really seem to get what Jesus is about. For example, he could be very legalistic in his sense of goodness. When a woman one time anointed Jesus with a very expensive perfume, it was Judas who protested the anointing by saying that the righteous thing to do would have been to take that money, take that perfume, to sell it and give the money to the poor. It was a good, righteous response. Response, But in his self-righteousness, he overlooks completely this very poignant act of worship which was taking place right in front of him. And Jesus has to tell him, this is an act of worship that's, that's taking place right now. This woman is preparing me for my burial. But Judas, in his sense of legalistic goodness, couldn't see it. So I don't think Judas really understood Jesus very well. But that's not to say that he was unusual in that. I think most of the disciples had a very hard time understanding how the prophetic uh, story that we see in the Old Testament leading to the Messiah was going to play out. None of them were really expecting the crucifixion, even though Jesus warned them time and time and time again, at least four times in the Gospel of Matthew. But one thing that is clear in the Scriptures is that Jesus did know what Judas was about. He understood Judas, and he knew what Judas was heart plan was. But what that exactly is, again, it's not spelled out. Aside from a few curious exchanges between the two, mostly in the Gospel of John, there's these exchanges that take place between the two. We don't really know what's going on between them. But that hasn't stopped the avalanche of speculation over the years. And what's pretty clear to me, again, of all the Gospel writers, John really does not like Judas. He has big issues with Judas. But Matthew Interestingly, it kind of takes a more neutral view of Judas. Matthew, is, Matthew portrays Judas as a man who is caught up in a role which he's been destined for, to fulfill prophecy. At least the prophecy is destined. Maybe, maybe, Judas, maybe someone else would have filled that spot if Judas hadn't made himself available to fill the spot. But the role of the betrayer is destined and so we kind of wonder sometimes, is Judas to be hated or is he to be kind of pitied in some way? For example, what does Jesus mean in Matthew 26 when he says this, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. He says this right out in front of everybody. The Son of Man will go on, will go just as was written about him. That's an important thing. Jesus understands he will go in the direction that destiny has placed him in. The Son of Man will go 
just as was written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It'd be better for him if he had never been born. How does Jesus say that? Does he say it with anger? Does he say the Son of Man will go as this was written? But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. Or does he say it with a sense of pity? The Son of Man's going to go. Just as was written about him. But woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he hadn't even been born. We don't know. We don't have the tone. But what we do know is we're reminded here by Jesus that while he is the one to whom destiny bows, the Son of Man will go just as it's been written. Destiny is bowing to Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of destiny. Judas is going to be consumed by destiny. He's going to be consumed by it, destroyed by it. And the only thing that's going to really be left of Judas is a memory, a stain upon eternity's history that could only have never happened if he had not been born. And so Matthew, he actually refers to several Old Testament prophecies when he, comes to, when he talks about Judas. And we talked about, he, he talks about, uh, uh, he, he focuses on a prophet we don't really talk that much about named Zechariah. And there's several passages in gospels, Matthew's gospel where he talks, he takes an image out of Zechariah, and he'll do so today as well. But in this, what Matthew's doing is he, he puts Judas as a person that's in the stream of history, the stream of destiny, the stream of the inevitable. Because this had to happen. Jesus had to die for our sins if we were going to ever be released from the pain and the eternal agony that sin brings about. It had to happen. It is inevitable. But it's a painful journey for Judas. So we leave Peter weeping bitterly, and we pick up at Judas in Matthew 27. It says this, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the, a potter's, the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. When what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, now in our scriptures this is actually comes out of the book of Zechariah, they took the 30 silver coins the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used him to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. So when you read this passage, what do you see in Judas? And I want to encourage you to kind of set aside the villain that we've been, talk, we've been raised to understand Judas to be. And just look at this passage. What do you see in Judas? Now, I'm going to share with you my opinion. I'm not saying this is what you, how you have to think about Judas or feel about Judas, but in my opinion, what I see here is a person who realizes he has made a horrible, horrible decision. And I won't say mistake, 
because he knew what he was doing when he was betraying Christ. But I think that he was expecting something different to happen because the scripture says that when he saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the silver coins. And you can't help but wonder, well, what were you expecting to happen, Judas? What, what did you think would happen when you arranged for Jesus' arrest? I mean, surely you heard the little talking talk going on all throughout Jerusalem, especially after he entered Jerusalem on the donkey and the Pharisees right away were angry with him. You had, you had to know the talk that Jesus' life was in danger. What were you thinking would happen? How could you be seized with remorse? It's like he was expecting something different, and maybe he was. Again, this is speculation. Over the years, some have thought that this indicates that Judas was trying to push Jesus into a situation where he would have to openly proclaim himself as the Messiah. Because if you remember, one of, the, one of the, it's not odd, but it's a little bit of an unusual thing, that Jesus would often do miracles and then tell people, don't tell anyone about it. He would heal people, but don't say anything about it. He would say, when Peter confessed him as Messiah, Jesus said, this was revealed to you by the Father, but keep it to yourself. And this was, this was a constant thing going on. And if you had wanted Jesus, if you were a follower of Jesus, and you're wanting him to step up and claim what it means to be king of kings and lord of lords, and he keeps dithering around, healing people, but saying, don't do it. Don't tell folks. Maybe Judas pushed him into this. So that he, Jesus would have no choice but to reveal himself to the chief priests, to the Pharisees, to even Pilate himself, that he was the king of kings. And in fact, he does reveal himself to Pilate. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. But no, it's not going to look like anything you expected. And that's what Judas runs into. It doesn't look like anything he was expecting. Jesus is condemned to death. And whatever it was he was thinking, when he realized Jesus was going to die, his world falls apart, and he does what people often do when they find themselves deep into sin. He tries to distance himself from that sin. He tries to distance himself from the guilt and the shame. If you've ever been in a place of deep sin yourself, or you know people that have, and you try and talk with them about it, you'll often find there's this excuses that are just right out front. The reasons why they did this. I didn't know what I was doing. It just happened. I wasn't expecting this. That, 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 that. We have all kinds of ways that we distance ourselves. And if there was some kind of ill-gotten gain, in this case money, a lot of times people will try and say, and I don't even want the money anymore. They'll try and distance themselves from the sin. And this is what Judas does. He tries to give the money back to the priest. He's frantic about it. But the priests, what do they do? They act like they don't even know him. He goes back to the people with whom he had made this deal to betray Christ and have him to be arrested. And the priest, instead of any kind of word of, well, you know, you just did what we asked you to do. Or, well, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a heretic, so what you're doing is good for Israel. Instead, they act like they don't even know him. He comes broken. And the response of the priest is, what's that have to do with us? This is your responsibility, not our problem. They treat him like he's this foul-smelling stench, that he's unclean and doesn't want anything to, they don't want anything to do with him. So he takes the money, because they won't take it in their own hands, and he throws it into the temple, and then runs away. And the priests, this very same money that they put into the hands of Judas when they wanted him to betray Christ, now they say, well, this is unclean money. This is blood money. Because it's very important to keep the law of Moses when you do murder for hire. 
You know, it's important to have those priorities straight. So they pick up the money, and they buy this potter's field. And in, in the time this was written, it's kind of interesting that the time this was written, you can tell that they, everyone kind of reading it, they would expect, you know what that field is, and to this day is called the field of blood. That while they were writing this, it was a tangible connection to a historic event that Matthew expected people to be able to understand, which is one of those little things when people say, oh, Christianity is just this big myth. Throughout the Bible, there's these little connections that there's a clear expectation of the people writing it at the time that you could make these historic connections. And this is one of them. And then Judas, what does he do? Well, he hangs himself. So last week we talked about what to do when you fail in your faith. And basically we said, when you fail in your faith, you need to repent, confess your sins, get back up, and continue to follow Jesus. You're all going to fail at some point. We're all going to make some big promise to God we're not going to keep. We're all going to have places that we feel like we have grievously fallen short of the Lord. And the only thing we can do is repent, confess our sin, get back up, and follow Jesus. I don't want to make it sound like it's, it's something to be taken lightly, but in a nutshell, that's what it's about. We had a whole sermon on it last week. We don't need to wallow or sit curled up in some little emotional, spiritual ball and just stay in this place of darkness and pain. And maybe this will take a little bit of time when you go through something like this. Maybe even after you get done, you'll have good days and bad days. You'll have good weeks and bad weeks. Maybe a bunch of really bad weeks. But when Judas hangs himself he removes himself from the possibility of redemption. He voluntarily removes himself from forgiveness, from experiencing forgiveness directly from Christ. And in doing this, he goes headfirst into an abyss, which I have to admit to you, since I've never gone as far as he went to hang himself, I find out I can't say that I fully understand how dark that abyss can be, but if it's so dark, you're willing to take your own life, and it's dark indeed. Eli Weisel was a guy who survived Auschwitz. He was a poet, and he was a writer. And he was often asked in his life, you know, what was it that got people through uh, being in this terrible place, this hell on earth, you know, there were those who were just killed right away, but then there were those that, that just kind of were going through the process of trying to survive and they just would give up and oftentimes just die. Anne Frank kind of did that. If you ever know Anne Frank's story, she was in the, in the camps and she was going through it and going through it and going through it. And when she got the news that her father died, two weeks later she died. It's like the thing she was hanging on to just kind of left her. And the sad thing was is her father had not died. But if you go through the Anne Frank Museum, they talk about this. She got news that her father died, and a few weeks later, she dies. And Eli Weissel was often asked, what is it that got people through? And he said there was hope that got people through. It was a belief that there was something waiting on the other side of this miserable situation. And he says this about hope, and I like this phrase because it's a deep one. He talks about hope as not just being wishful thinking, but hope as being remembering the future. And of course, that's kind of like a juxtaposition there because remembering is something we think of the past. But he's saying, no, hope is remembering. It's believing there's something there. He writes this, the memory of the future is knowing that something is coming. Not just wishful thinking, but knowing that something is coming. Something that is better than anything we've ever seen. 
something that will make everything right. And I trust that God, I trust God that one day we will see it. And it's this belief or this faith in knowing something better is coming that kept him alive through the camps. Even when he was disappointed, he was disappointed at times because he was hoping that his father, his father would also survive and his father did not survive. But he never lost that faith in this remembered future, something that was assured. You just had to remember that it was assured. And as believers in Christ, no matter where you're at in your faith and in feeling up or down, we have a remembered future given to us. And the book of Revelation, for example, talks about the remembered future in this way. This is just one of the many different remembered futures. Another one is Jesus that says, uh, I go and prepare a room for you in my Father's house. There are many rooms in my Father's house. If it weren't so, I would have told you. So we are given this, this assurance of a future There is a place for us in the kingdom of God. John the Revelator says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. There is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with him. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without any cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. We have this remembered future. If we trust that Jesus Christ is indeed not just a liar or a lunatic, but he is Lord, because those are really only the three options that are out there, given what he has to say. Either Jesus is telling the truth, or he's completely nuts, or he's evil. And if he's telling the truth, then we have this remembered future, our assurance. But we have to admit, sometimes it's hard to remember a future. Even his own disciples, when Jesus told them that he was going to be crucified, he also told them every time he was going to be resurrected. He would say to them, the Son of Man is going to be taken, he is going to be, you know, crucified, but on the third day he will rise again. He told them what their remembered future was going to be just a few days, just a week in advance. And the disciples, like many of us, were so focused on their own circumstances and what was going on around them and what they expected things to look like that they didn't remember the future that was only going to be a week ahead of them, that there was going to be hope after that darkest day of the crucifixion. And I don't know answers to the questions like, is Judas is in hell? Is he in hell? I don't know. It's not my call. I don't know all the answers about suicide in general. You know, I've never had suicide come close in my life, thank God. But over the years, I've been close enough to know. As a pastor, you know, you walk through it sometimes with people. It is a whole different level of pain, conflicted emotions and grief. But we don't have to go there if we would just remember the assured future that we have in Christ. 
And no matter how things get, how bad they get, you are loved. One of the verses I, I fall back on all the time, and I share this with you often. You know, we talk about those handful of scriptures that really kind of define who we are. We all have them. One of mine was the one where he talks to the, the fathers, and he says, if you guys know, you guys are sinful, fallen, evil, as he calls them people, you know how to care for those that you love. Don't you think that God knows how to care for the ones he loves? And if you being evil know how to do good for the ones you love, then don't you think God knows how to do good for the ones he loves? And when you're in that super dark place, God knows you're there, and he loves you. And the assured future that he has for you in Christ doesn't change just because of the circumstances in this world changes. This world is a fallen world. This world can, I mean, it's kind of amazing that we live as good a lives as we live. And all of us are beginning to realize that a lot of that goodness of our life is like as thin as the skin on an apple. It doesn't take much to cause this whole thing to become very difficult. Economic upheaval, war, famine, disease. We've kind of gone through it all in the last couple of years. And we're beginning to realize, at least some of us, that this idea that everything is all safe and nice is a bit of an illusion in this world. But the love of God and the faithfulness of God is not an illusion. And it may be kind of a weird thing to have to say in a sermon, but I think it's important to say that Christ died for you. He died for you to buy your soul with his very blood. The last thing he wants you to do when you fail in your faith or you sin or you find yourself in a place of hopelessness is for you to take your life. He owns it now. If you're a Christian, you don't own it. He owns it. You were bought at a price. And that price was the very blood of Christ himself. You don't really have the right. My body, my choice. Not if you're a Christian. When it comes to this place of, you know, if you're going to take your life or keep your life, that's not up to you. Because you were bought at a price. I don't know any of the deeper questions around that. All I do is I know that. And I've often wondered, what if Judas had just been able to hang on? What if he had remembered that, that future of the resurrection? You know, he didn't even have to hang on for three full days in that dark place. He had just really hung on for about a day and a half because really Christ's uh, crucifixion takes place Friday evening, which starts, you know, Passover. Then it's Saturday. Then it happens Sunday morning. It's not three 24-hour days. It's about a day and a half that's spread over three, three dates. If he could just hang on for a day and a half, would he have experienced something similar to Peter? Because Peter denied knowing Christ. He called an oath on him. He cursed himself. And yet he found forgiveness and restitution in Christ. Would Judas have? I don't know. Because Judas ended that possibility himself. He ended it. I think that's sad. So I'm no expert in all this area, and I don't have the answers, but I do know that no matter the darkest place I'm in, by faith, I believe that God does love me, He knows me, and He's as, at least as nice as I am. And if I know how to care for those 
who I love. Surely he knows how to care for those whom he loves. And he has already promised and provided forgiveness. So if you find yourself in that dark place, maybe you're not there today, and I hope you never are there. But if you do ever find yourself, remember this. Hang on. Resurrection is coming. Maybe it's a resurrection of hope. Maybe it's a resurrection of circumstances. Maybe it's a resurrection of your own humility when you have to realize, I have really messed things up, and it's time for me to get back to basics and follow Christ. But whatever it is, there is always hope. There's always a remembered future. So hang on. If there's any dying to be done, let it be death to self. Not death of self, but death to self. Death to your definition of what you are and allow yourself to live in Christ. To be who Christ calls you to be. And then you'll live life for the one through whom all life comes. And you'll be joined together with him forever in the one destiny, the one person to whom destiny itself bows. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and thank you for the, the times in it that are the passages which are tough but realistic. I mean, it's just the way it is. Judas gave up hope. And Father, we pray for those in our body and either now or have been or maybe people struggle with with uh, issues in their lives that uh, sometimes they're physical, sometimes they're just circumstances. But we pray for our brothers and sisters and for the people whose lives we influence that if they go into this dark place that they will not give up hope. And we're thankful that you've given us this remembered history. You've given us the assurance of who you are. You've given us the assurance of where our lives are going as we follow you. You've given us the assurance of a remembered uh, future. And may the enemy, we pray in Jesus' name, that the enemy would not cloud our minds or cloud the minds of people we care about who are in dark places so that they can see the light that you are, even in that darkest of night of the soul. And Father, we pray. We, we often pray for brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world, and we do so understand that we are not in that same place of persecution. But, Father, we also do pray, though, for those of us who haven't really experienced it yet, so that when, if that comes around, that we are able to stand strong and remember that no matter what the darkness is that the world tries to pour upon us, you are our hope and you are our light, and that will never fail. And may we speak words of hope. I think a lot of times people see you, Lord, as kind of an angry old man, and that there is judgment, but there isn't really mercy and love. Father, may we as a people and as a church in this nation and the cities that we, we live in, may we be a person that people can see and if we have the opportunity to talk with, they can, they can hear words of hope because there's a lot of hopelessness out there right now. God, may we be light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.